From the University of Cambridge and the Centre of Governance and Human Rights, I'm Helen Jennings, and this is Declarations. I'm a final year undergraduate law student here at the University of Cambridge, and I'll be your host for today. Here at Declarations, we explore contemporary debates about politics and human rights with people who study them and people who fight for them, both here in the UK and around the world. This week, we're drawing on one of our central themes for this year, community, to bring you an episode focusing on the intersection between urban development, changing societies, and communities facing homelessness. In this episode, we will be focusing on housing crises in the Global South. With housing rights barely guaranteed, can we imagine a right to sleep? Joining me on the podcast today is our new for season three regular panellist, Mary Jean, an MPhil student with a research focus on literature, also here at the University of Cambridge. Our esteemed guests for this episode are Shreyashi Dasgupta and Seanak Sen. Shreyashi is the Nehru Cambridge Trust PhD Scholar at the Centre for Development Studies and Girton College at the University of Cambridge. She supervises undergraduates in the Department of Geography. Shreyashi has also co-founded the Cambridge Urbanism in the Global South Interdisciplinary Working Group. Seanak Sen is a filmmaker, video artist and scholar based in Delhi. Cities of Sleep is his first feature-length documentary. We'll be discussing Cities of Sleep today, which explores the world of insurgent sleepers communities, as well as the infamous Sleep Mafia in Delhi, where just securing a safe sleeping spot often becomes a question of life and death. We'd love for you, before we really get into this episode, to take three minutes of your time and watch the trailer for Cities of Sleep on YouTube. That will help frame your understanding of what we're talking about for this episode. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to introduce yourselves and give us some information about your background, what do you work on and what drew you to focus on housing and homelessness in your work? Hi, I'm Sreyashi Dasgupta and I'm a PhD student based at the Centre of Development Studies here at Cambridge. I work in the area of urban housing, planning and governance in cities of the Global South and I focus particularly on the forms and processes of temporary accommodation for low-income workers in Dhaka, in Bangladesh and Mumbai in India. What drew my focus on housing was the fact that first I lived in one of these accommodations. I grew up kind of in a city in Calcutta and I uh, more sort of professionally, I thought of this topic because often cities in the global south are represented through this urban imagery of the slums and the high rises, this kind of two extreme housing landscapes. But there are several other categories of housing that are in between and that offers this diversity of arrangements in the face of urban housing crisis. So my research interest, therefore, was to push back against this kind of framing via the lens of slums, but to actually think about the new kinds of emerging low-income housing spaces and ways to make sense of cities and the politics of urban transformation. Uh, hi, my name is Shonak, and I'm a academic and a filmmaker. Uh, my recent film, Cities of Sleep, is about the sleep market, so the sleep, what has been called the sleep mafia of Delhi. These are people who control who sleeps where, for how long, and what quality of sleep for the homeless. My main interest is in trying to think of urban spaces through the lens of sleep. There's a fair bit of work around thinking through the city by day, but I was interested in thinking of the city by night and using sleep as a kind of optic to map the city. So 
to think of sort of micro topologies of sleep to think of the geography of the city via the horizontal axis as opposed to the vertical axis i looked at two particular communities that are sleep based communities in delhi and i shot for about 3 years and edited it for about a year so it involved a dense kind of ethnographic immersion in these particular sleep communities and telling the stories of how these sleep economies cohere almost surreptitiously every single night in most of the megapolises across the city in delhi of course the sleep markets are a far more well-oiled sort of a machinery so i looked at two particular areas this one place uh, called meena bazaar which is in the center of delhi which during the day is a sort of bustling old delhi market but during the night sort of transforms into a vast spread of a space that is used for people to sleep together so if you went there on a december night you'd find about 3000 people sleeping there and they usually rent out sleeping infrastructure so it's 10 rupees for a cot bed 10 rupees for a blanket 10 rupees for a, a cot depending on how many layers of that people can afford The other place I looked at was this place called the Iron Bridge. This is in North Delhi where there's a huge two-tier steel bridge, iron bridge, underneath which is the river Yamuna. Underneath the bridge is a thin narrow strip of land flanked on either side by the river. The people living there have opened a sort of small sleep cinema. These are informal settlements where a TV, television set plays films all night and all day long, and people usually go there to either watch films or sleep or both. So it's a sort of community that has come together on the basis of finding a safe sleeping spot. So in a way I was interested in thinking of urbanism through the optic of places which help secure safe space or communities of sleep uh, that have banded together for years now. Thank you so much. I have to say having watched the film I found it really fascinating and impactful and it sort of opened my eyes to a world that I had never seen. Um Mary Jane, you watched the film as well. Did anything particularly strike you? Well, thanks for those introductions. Yeah, so I thought it was really quite interesting how the films presented a kind of spatial duality in the sense that you've like just mentioned now how there was a particular purpose during the daytime and then that purpose sort of changed its personality during the nighttime. And um I'd just like you to talk a bit more on that. Right. Um I sort of framed that duality by themes such as verticality and horizontality, themes such as day and night, themes such as restfulness and, you know, a wakeful vigilantist productivity through which our cities are usually characterized. So a lot of urban studies focuses on the city by day. So the main axis to think of that is thinking of the city through navigation, through movement, through verticality i think a different kind of a city emerges when you think of the city by night and when you think of the city characterized by horizontal bodies it's a whole different kind of topos it's a whole different kind of concerns demands and characteristics that compose this kind of a city i was interested also in thinking about how one reconfigures the political to include aspects like sleep because otherwise sleep is a sort of politically neutral zone you know it's uh, or so you think or so one thinks so it's interesting to sort of assimilate and start thinking about the sleeping body also as a site of great political turmoil and contestation and therefore also resistance 
when I started working with these different sleep communities that only come together during the night and largely composed by daily wage laborers, by rickshaw pullers and other kinds of sort of subsectors that together cohere to form the uh, homeless community. It's, there are different ways in which communities come together to soldier on and survive. I don't want to paint only a bleak narrative. One of the intentions of the film is too much of our narratives of homelessness have to do with a kind of abjectness, have to do with a kind of precarity and, you know, a bleakness. Whereas these are communities that also have, you know, it's the joy of being together, of, of a kind of camaraderie that only comes together by occupying spaces together. And in that way, sleep seemed to me like a central figure. A lot of the characters in the film say things like, if you want to control somebody's life, control their sleep. And these were the kinds of lines that initially got me interested in this whole arena. Or for example, there's this one character who says, the difference between public property and private property is to sleep at that spot for more than two days. And wow. that sort of foundationally militates against our sense of space, our sense of privacy, our sense of private property and public property. Absolutely. To understand how we think of our relationship to a particular space, a sense of habitus, etc. So, I mean, I, I thought it was interesting because it inaugurated these new kinds of challenges in how we think of space, mobility, porosity in cities. So sleep is just like an interesting new political lens to think of it. Oh, you've raised so many of the themes that I want to draw on um, throughout this episode. So just to start off, you mentioned the binaries that you wanted to explore through the film, sort of day and night being one of them. And Shreyasha, you have also explored binaries in your work, particularly highlighting that those structures which have traditionally been understood as housing binaries, such as slums and high rises, are actually overlapping and mutually dependent. Can you give us more insight into your work in this area? Sure, let me sketch this out a bit. So the discussions on housing and housing crises has often been homogenized. So in my research, I used the word and looked at temporary housing, both as a category and as a process that emerged out of the field. So I didn't go doing fieldwork thinking about temporary housing. It was just something that, you know, while doing my fieldwork in Bangladesh and Dhaka, the typologies that I saw, so that kind of came out more as a grounded work. So in terms of category, I looked at mess accommodations in Dhaka in Bangladesh. And in Mumbai, I looked at two typologies. So one was the dormitories and the other is the work residence typology. So just to give you an idea about what these are and how they might look. So the mess housing are, were all like temporary, private, rental accommodation, useful for workers coming to Dhaka from rural areas looking for jobs. Spatially, they were varied sort of range, uh, both horizontal and vertical in nature. So the horizontal one would be like anywhere, say a ground plus one floor or one storied or two storied. The verticals could go up to like six or seven storied. So, you know, while that's the exterior, the interior would be mostly like floor sleeping arrangements. So a room could have like five or 10 workers living in. In Mumbai, I focused on the dormitories and the work residence and the dorms were different than the ones that we know for like tourists. You know, these dorms where I conducted my research was located, for example, inside old non-functional industrial complex. Workers who lived here were constantly on the move and would pay a very small amount to spend the night, similar to what Shaunak was just referring to. 
you know, the work residence was a bit different here. There was like the ground floor, there was a workshop and the top floor people would sleep in the night. So it had dual purposes and, you know, these were made out of semi-permanent materials. In some cases, they might be permanent. So so there's like a whole range of temporary housing or temporary accommodation, depending on like how you want to uh, name it. So in terms of processes, there are these different dimensions of temporality that I explored in my work. So just to say that there are tons of layers, even the broad word of like housing and then temporary housing and what that might mean. And that really plays on what Shonak was saying about the axes by which you understand a city, you know, whether that be vertical or horizontal. Having watched Shonak's film yourself, Shreyashi, did you see any other conclusions that you drew in your work reflected? Yeah, I sort of had like two points in mind when I watched the movie. I thought it was fantastic. One was this dimension of makeshift spaces. Shonak very nicely sort of points out to certain scenes where, you know, kids would play in these, like in the shelters that he researched, there'll be swings made out of saris and, you know, cinema for entertainment and how that turns into a sleeping space in the night. In my own work, I sort of explored those kind of duality in the sense how certain spaces would be during daytime and during the night, how those would get converted into places of sleep. So this kind of makeshift arrangement as a lens was really interesting to think about these spaces. The second thing that I was thinking about is also the vocabulary of how uh, we frame these discussions. So of course, uh, Shanak referred it, you know, as people who were working as say rickshaw pullers or auto drivers and he also used it under the framework of like homeless people who might have like different you know living arrangements i actually looked at it and termed it like low-income workers or accommodations so this kind of urban vocabulary that's coming out of cities of the global south is interesting to think about because to me like i wouldn't put it as like they being homeless because, you know, even in the movie, it showed that the guy had to go back to his village, to his father. So it's not like they don't have a home, but this whole circularity between going to the village, coming to the city for work, these vocabularies that we are used to do not sort of fit in these narratives that we are talking about. So... Yeah, it's interesting to think how our vocabulary might change according to modern working practices, because that makes perfect sense to me as a person who has left her home and her country to come and work and live and study in another place. I'm sure it does to you too. I mean, people talk about the commute here as well, as but it's completely different in that, so say you're living and working in London, the idea of coming into London and finding temporary accommodation that doesn't consist of four walls that doesn't consist of a flat and then you know going back to your own home to your sort of family home that seems totally beyond our understanding here in England of city work of city life but we're seeing in your film Shaunak a totally different conception of what it is to live and work in a city were you conscious of the vocabulary that was being used throughout the filming process I mean, by the way, of a disclaimer, cities are, of course, complex, discursive and myriad kinds of entities. And homelessness can be thought of as a whole variety of things. And that the problem of homelessness is clearly fairly abundant in the UK also. So I think it would help to resist the binary of West, which is devoid of 
homelessness as an issue and the global south which isn't having said that of course the questions are of scale are entirely different so the scale is an entirely different universe altogether of course there are uh, sheer sheet your uh, about whether the category of homelessness is actually adequate i too have often felt that there is an inadequacy in it being a homogenizing kind of a blanket umbrella term there are of course different kinds of homelessness one can think one can conceptualize a kind of itinerant homelessness where there are people who would have had houses in the rural backgrounds that they come from in the villages districts where they come from whereas the urban becomes the space that actually spawns homelessness which is true of various forms of urban living now i can't comment about other cities but could with some degree of expertise about uh, delhi the majority of the homeless population i think is actually unsheltered now just to give you some numbers in 2013 when i was shooting the official figures were that uh, 2.7 million homeless in delhi alone the total number of night shelters in delhi at that point government night shelters were less than 300 all of which could house between 50 to 70 people so quite obviously the sheer volume of the homeless in the city and the amounts that the city officially can house it's just an infinitesimal fraction of it that can actually be housed so of course these spaces of the sleep markets arise as a social necessity you know like one of the characters in the film says it's a thing that has to be done and therefore i think very often these informal markets work in a kind of quiet cohabitation with the authorities having said that i think it's important to distinguish between the unsheltered and the homeless in the general parlance in which we use it a large 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 volume of the so called homeless in uh, delhi are migrant daily wage laborers who are seasonal daily wage laborers so they have farming lands where they farm for particular seasons and it's usually in the winters that from the states of bengal bihar jharkhand etc people come to delhi to work because there's a greater abundance of daily wage labor available there so technically these wouldn't be the homeless in so far as the homeless are people who can't afford housing to have any sort of home they have left their homes temporarily to uh, come there so i think that's a sort of qualification to hold on to and this is there is no irreducible specificity to the case of delhi in this this sort of seasonal migration is true to a large amount of uh, cities in the global south and in the west uh, actually increasingly more so yeah that's what i was really trying to draw on when i was speaking before in terms of this seasonal migration it's not something that we think of as applicable to i give the example of london i'd really like to explore for a minute those sort of contrasts and parallels between experience of homelessness in the global south versus western states and then the attitudes towards persons experiencing homelessness i would imagine the way how shanak described homelessness in his work and how i understand having lived in the uk for a couple of years now is one is this thing of occupation and income because i think here in the uk we understand somebody who's homeless somebody who does not have a job does not have enough like money to pay or to get a shelter somewhere like basically somebody who's just on street without any support 
whereas how shonak has conceptualized homelessness and what he's referring to is actually workers who have jobs but extremely temporary jobs who might work only for a couple of hours in the day who are migrants coming in for day jobs daily wage laborers and then they are struggling with this kind of housing crisis in these huge cities so there's that distinction between like work and what they seek for in terms of housing yeah and i find it really useful that you used the distinction between persons experiencing homelessness and unsheltered persons in speaking about that shona do you have anything more to say on that yeah okay uh, just as an important caveat i am not an expert on homelessness of course uh, neither academically nor experientially i think the latter is important to signpost yeah. that my work was on thinking about sleep and its relationship to inadequacy and homelessness is an important gambit within that also uh, most of us i imagine are from a class denomination where it's not a direct experience of so i think it's important to sort of signpost that having said that in terms of the attitudes towards homelessness i think in a lot of cities and i know that it's definitely true of london and it's definitely true of delhi and various other cities in the global south that there is a very brutal kind of a sanitizing logic to cities where there would be certain areas which would be completely sort of washed clean of any signs of poverty like it's a sterilizing logic that sort of organizes the city and actually to my mind cities are really not the kind of porous permeable entities that we often characterize them to be cities are very often not porous i would be stunned at times to find that various characters in the film that i was shooting would tell me that they would have lived in they that they'd lived in delhi for about 20 years but they have never even once visited south delhi which is the posher area of delhi even once and that that was astounding so i think class of course allows the city to be a far more navigable sort of unit whereas cities are often actually extremely uh, segregated and therefore there is also an aesthetic regime that that imposes in that certain cities have i mean there are millions of cities within a city and that's why cities of sleep the title also had to do with a kind of flagging of that kind of uh, manyness to a city So you've spoken on the erasure of the homeless experience from a city and from the experiences of those who are perhaps more privileged within a city their day-to-day experience. Now I'm aware that many countries and many cities have introduced features in urban settings that are more hostile to urban people, such as dividers on benches so that people can't sleep across them or even we've seen in the UK recently where businesses have put spikes in their doorways so that people who are experiencing homelessness can't sleep there. Now this has caused outrage online and outrage in many um city councils I'm sure. But I think that there's something to be explored there. Why do you think that urban development has militated towards these measures? That's a great question. I think the aspect of public discomfort is critical to understand. because the question really is when is this useful and for whom like for instance these accommodations or shelters that were allowed to thrive flourish find their own sort of ways to cope up with this problem but one fine day even in the film and otherwise we see in different cities that you know it gets demolished it gets criminalized what i'm trying to say is that 
you know, it happens after a certain kind of benchmark events have taken place, like say a disaster when buildings fall down, say a major crime has taken place from those communities. Somebody has filed a court case preparation for an infrastructure project. So these erasers are not sudden. So it happens at the pretext of like some event that must have happened. So, you know, these will thrive until and unless, you know, there's that kind of major event that takes place. So it's interesting to understand, you know, the housing arrangements will survive until the local politics have really emerged in those kind of spaces. So all I'm saying, like the policy aspect is interesting to understand more holistically as to the case in point when it's happening at that given time and place. So. I'd say the quick answer to that is that there's a self-evident logic of uh, the convergence between policy, neoliberalism, and a certain kind of aesthetic strategy to the city, which completely erases ideas of inadequacy, because the city is thought of as a conduit for adequacy. And as such, all markers that militate against that logic are therefore uh, removed. Also. Look, I think that our very logics of spatiality are changing over time. So cities increasingly, we now know, are being designed for, say, car mobility or different modes of infrastructural imaginaries come into being as the primary integers for planning and governance. Now, quite obviously, that kind of an organizing logic will impose its own aesthetics as well. So in that, I think there is a there are ideas of a brutal kind of hygiene, sanitization, etc. that are therefore enforced. And so areas that started off as ghettos have usually a kind of dual telos, either gentrified kind of upmarketing of it. Yeah, or it'll thrive in its own way, like it stays on. And yeah, or there are certain areas that actually get segregated through a multiplicity of measures, by which I mean there are certain areas in Delhi that are also the hubs of, say, daily wage labor, that are actually tough to go to by cars or that aren't connected via the tube. So I think when we try and unpack the aesthetic regime modulating the city, one has to think about these different imaginaries. So navigation becomes tough. The reasons to go there become fewer and fewer. The distribution of cultural infrastructure in the city starts looking elsewhere. So there's a whole constellation of these different effects that I think sort of start partitioning the city in certain ways. In terms of partitioning a city also, I'd like to explore now the interaction between communities facing homelessness and again drawing on our theme for the year, their community as an entity in itself within a city and its interaction with the authorities. Mary Jean, I know that you had a question on that. So earlier on, Shanak, you mentioned how the the narrative that's permeating through the film is not necessarily that of bleakness and of abjectness. And it was interesting how in addition to, to also layering out the film, you sort of explored how people in those circumstances, you know, have moments of enjoying life, such as birthday celebrations and the like. And for me, I think that sort of showed a kind of agency that's expressed by people within these circumstances. And so 
you also have a particular character there in the film that's meeting a particular need that's not necessarily that easy for the government to meet. The character in the film mentions how they're there illegally, but they're actually meeting a need, a social need. Can you just talk a bit more on that? So I'm going to try and divide the question to two segments of bleakness and of agency. So in terms of bleakness, I think any work of ethnographic integrity will try and characterize the whole vagaries of the life that it's looking at in all its complexities. Which, and life as we know, is never one emotion. It's never any one particular tone. Life is never monotone, right? So it will be characterized by bleakness. It will have dashes of a whole compound of emotions, which also involves moments of joy, mm-hmm. moments of solidarity, moments of soldiering on. I think in trying to render the lives of the people that I was shooting with all its complexity and roundedness, I didn't want to only present their lives as a packet of suffering, abjectness, precarity, pain, and not just those usual bundles that we anyway sort of associate with homelessness. Because I think even politically it doesn't serve too much because you're you're sort of straight-jacketing it in a kind of format that people are already familiar with and it has a distancing function, therefore. When you're able to capture a life in greater vagaries, in the vicissitudes of its span, you will also have moments of joking, you will also have moments of fun, of singing, of celebrating a birthday. of, And I think it's an important part of the humanist project to try and render all those colors and tones of life. So you pointed out a birthday that one of the characters... And it's funny because I keep getting that question in India. How is it that people whose lives are characterized by so much inadequacy, they're struggling to find uh, a night's shelter, why are they, you know cutting a birthday cake or why are they singing and I there's something I find slightly offensive about that question to be honest because it's almost like uh, they don't have right to yeah 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 is it no more than the right is it the case that no matter what circumstance a life is in and no matter how difficult it is my belief that life has a quality of anticlimacticness you know life has a quality of going on and that's actually tragic but that's also an equal measure funny and ho-hum <laughs> and in that sense lives are always after the ellipsis you know it's there's an elliptical quality to it and in that of course side by side with the bleakness and the great tragedy that is part of the everyday lives of the world I was shooting in are also moments of joy and laughter and it's very important as a sort of ethical gesture to incorporate those moments of laughter, fun, joy. In terms of agency, look, agency is actually, when it comes to cultures of informality in the global south, agency is a more complicated process because there is the state functions with a kind of salient bipolarity of it being both coercive and cohabitational. So, of course, the authorities and all the areas around one of the places in the film called Meena Bazaar, which is one of the bigger sort of spreads of the sleep market, Of course, they knew that this was happening. Of course, everybody knew. But look, at the end of the day, as I was pointing out earlier, the sheer staggering inequity, asymmetry between what can be provided by the way of a shelter and 
what the demand is requires these kinds of slapdash and formal kinds of arrangements to come in so it is a social necessity i have no doubt and i have no apprehensions in terms of saying that so and because these kinds of small informal units have now thrived for well in some cases for over 20 years all of them also therefore become units which have their own agential ways of they have their own codes they have their own conventions sometimes they are coercive sometimes they are therefore violent and agency is not just a positive thing always right agency can also sometimes lapse on to other things like violence like coercion and these places are characterized by all kinds of agential acts positive and at times especially when it comes to the context of mina bazaar uh, coercive as well so just to draw out a point that you're making there taking for an example the large communal housing network that we saw in the film would you agree that when people are ostracized to a certain extent by mainstream social structures they create their own social structures and within that you're speaking on a sort of legal structure whether that be coercive or otherwise within mm-hmm. that as well would you agree that there's also this creation of rights structures legal structures and economic structures that are unique to the community right so i think exclusivity begets inclusivity so any kind of overtly exclusionary logic also therefore creates a kind of community of those who are marginalized now it's very important for us to not in any way romanticize that idea because i think a lot of ethnographic work lapses towards that yes as a response to the kind of oppositional logic that uh, cities sometimes impose on these communities there is a fair amount of cementing that happens where people band together just to give you a few examples in the iron bridge community that i was mentioning what they did over time was that the people who were sleeping there started pooling money together and forming a sort of health insurance fund so if somebody would get sick they would draw money from that particular bank and similarly they got together and got an electricity meter registered in their name which is like a sleepers fund now quite obviously what that community was able to do was mobilize sleep as a kind of enabling adhesive you know as a form of social kinship as a kind of i'm i'm loath to use the term social contract because of its exclusionary genealogies but they were able to mobilize or instrumentalize sleep as a kind of platform for coming together so they opened a bank account they pooled in money for a health insurance etc and these are all strategies and tactics to survive and soldier on and thrive so yes i would say that to be excluded means to be included in something but it's a line that we have to be careful about on ethical grounds i think of course and that both fits in with what you were saying at the beginning of the podcast about this camaraderie that you observed and also goes against sort of perhaps our audiences and certainly my understanding before we viewed the film as to how such a community might function shreyashi did you notice anything similar in your work yeah i mean I kind of agree with some stuff that Shonak said especially about the question on bleakness and agency. I think in my work I had similar experience of capturing the community you know in both their sort of moments of joy and distress during you know events when they had a crackdown and everything. So I think in terms of capturing it in its everyday sense I saw 
especially in Bangladesh, uh, you know, when I would go and interview them on Fridays because they would have a day off on that day. It's the day when they would go out, pray in the mosque and everything. There was a sense of holiday on street. People would be available at home. They would come cook together, even though they'll be living in dorms where they don't meet each other throughout the day. They'll go get vegetables together. They'll come back home. They'll cook their meal they'll celebrate different sort of social occasions. And and that's the kind of positiveness that thrives in the community, this whole codependence and interdependence on each other on these different occasions was very interesting to note. About the aspect of agency, I think I had this question on several occasions when people, you know, sort of asked about this formality and informality of these communities. and. It really depends on who you speak to or who do you interview about their understanding of are these communities formal or not. Because when I interviewed again in Dhaka, like the planning authorities, and they said, no, these are all illegal because none of them have received like planning permissions. It's not approved by an architect. So these building structures do not have a traditional sort of design process. So they said, no, this is clearly illegal. But when I interviewed like the local state, which is more like a municipal corporation or the council, as we know in this country, like when I spoke to the council authorities and they said, no, this is legal because they pay us taxes. And like how Shonak was saying, like the metering's been done, they get like a water connection, they have all these things in place. And they also have that receipt every month that they receive after paying taxes. I had interviewed police officers, lawyers, and a bunch of other people. So I think the stakeholders and the response that you get about questions of legitimacy or illegality is very different in these spaces. That's fascinating. One of the things that the team was really interested when we were researching this episode was the interaction between these communities and the state authorities in place. So something that really struck me when I watched the film was a scene where a man brought someone who he perceived to have committed a crime and instead of bringing him to the police, he brought him to the owner of the cot rental business as the source of authority. So I was wondering, how can the authorities work effectively or should they be working in the traditional sense of what they would deem to be effective in these communities where community members turn to others outside of official channels for their source of authority? So because a lot of these communities have been in place for the last two or decades and once the sun goes down and the night begins, in a lot of these places, the people who head these spots are the be-all and end-all of these places. Again, it's both coercion and cohabitation. And we have to hold on to that kind of a schizoid impulse in it, that it's both. So in a place like uh, Meena Bazaar in Central Delhi, this is back in 2013. I should point out that by 2016, that particular place had, like the end of the film suggests, had died out. Now, because these businesses have occupied that place overnight for the last 20 odd years, People go to them for complaints, for all kinds of things, which is both a good thing and a bad thing. And we need to hold on to that kind of bipolar quality of it. That often they provide protection. They ensure that there's no crime at that point. There's no, that the drug addiction problem doesn't become too big. Having said that, it's also a concentration of power. So in the film, you'll see that if 
somebody was defaulting on their sleep payments they were also getting slapped so it also therefore inaugurates new kind of punitive and jurisprudence like quasi jurisprudence logics which are outside of the state which could be good because it is more in keeping or more organically connected to the specificities of the ecosystem of that place or it could be terrible because it could be coercive it could be violent and it could be completely run by the whims of the people who are because these spaces become islands unto themselves and nightly islands you know so i don't have a position on whether it's good or bad because i think there are both aspects of it and it's impossible to have a kind of a totalizing unitary judgment on it in terms of what the state could do i don't know i mean it's a, that's a fairly big question but it is fairly apparent to me and i think to many others and i'm sure sure she would agree to this that the scale of the problem is such that to expect the government or the authorities to provide a kind of one stop sort of a solution for this is completely to my mind utterly silly i would go as far as to say that the problem actually is this solutionism complex there is a solutionist paradigm in which too often middle class families of the kind that i belong to where i would have uncles or aunts or parents who would offhandedly say oh the authorities should deal with this or i wish the government would do something about it and actually that becomes a way of dislocating or transferring any kind of responsibility so it's a ethical displacement it's a political displacement it's a way of just nudging the uh, problem to another quarter so i i don't think there can be one governmental solution and i don't know what the solution is but it clearly has to be these whole cross range or bandwidth of micro gestures and micro actions which involves the extra state in terms of the extra state craft in terms of the ngo uh, complex and so i don't know i i wouldn't venture a like a broader answer for this thank you so much mary jane would you like to weigh in on this i know that you have a legal background uh well it was interesting how you mentioned that there's a solutionist paradigm that people are constantly engulfed in but what i thought was quite interesting though is making use of the structures that are already existing even though of course they're extra legal and not necessarily within the confines of what should be happening officially but already it seems that with the cot bed for example i mean that's a structure that seems to be relatively serving a particular aspect of people's nightly need in terms of where to sleep so don't you think then both you and shiryashi in terms of the work that you've done finding solutions and in inverted commas within existing innovative ways that people have already tried to make for themselves i'm going to answer this by actually reflecting upon this one question that i keep getting asked after most uh, screenings of my film and i just don't know what to do with it and it annoys the living daylights out of me <laughs> which is what did the film do or what is the solution or its most vulgar version which i think has the government seen it why don't they solve this as if one can solve this sort of a thing in one fell swoop i do think that well for one making a film like this the idea is that you present work and you try and enlarge the scope of what one thinks of as the political within the city space and then a, a work of art or a work of academic or a work of conceptual thought gets instrumentalized by different action groups for a variety of reasons uh, which contributes to this vague broad edifice that one can call the solution 
to give you some examples i uh, my film was used by lawyers who were working on the beggary law in india which is a very brutal sort of a law which incriminates and jails people for asking for money for begging at particular places in the city or it was used by uh, therapists who came down and offered therapy sessions to and that to my mind went a huge deal in helping or it was used by architects who groups of architects who were working on building portable night shelters you know so what i'm meaning to draw out is that there's there can be a panoply of different kinds of people who are working on homelessness or inadequacy as a broader sort of a uh, thing and using the film in different ways and that's all i can actually hope or aspire uh, for i for one uh, try and run away as far as i can from a one stop broadband solutionist kind of a perspective shreyashi did you feel the need or were you asked to come up with some sort of solution to housing crisis problems in your work so I just wanted to add that this question is really common about is this good or bad what position do you take and recently I had organized a public exhibition at the Cambridge Festival of Ideas where I displayed a series of photographs based on my research I titled it like beds and sheds were our Indian Bangladesh any different and it was interesting because it was my first experience trying to to public engagement opening up my research to people to come and comment and what they thought about this and their thoughts and opinions and i constantly got that question right like what is your position are you advocating for this do you think this is good and one i wasn't prepared like really to answer that because the main idea of this research was to highlight the fact that this exists because a lot of people do not know that there are so many housing spaces in between apart from the binary that we know of Islam and high rise that you know we should know about different parts of the world and what what sort of spaces these are so one idea was to actually introduce that second while doing that exhibition i also realized that i chose the word beds and sheds to connect or draw a parallel between the beds and sheds in this country where similar types of things are happening around people giving out their sheds for workers to come and live in especially migrants from different parts and um you know and similarly getting criminalized by the state and you know they get removed or demolished after a point of time so that kind of parallel also helped me understand and help the audience understand that this is not just a phenomenon of the global south it's actually happening in the global north across big cities honestly where you know as workers try and come into that space to work for the first time they all go through the process of looking for a housing that they are you know searching for closer to their livelihood so not just to say that you know it's happening in india or bangladesh but like you know to look at cities elsewhere and which is why my comparative lens helped me understand like those kind of complexities and it's interesting to look at it comparatively thank you so much i think that's a great point to conclude on does anyone have any parting words for our audience no i'd just like to end maybe on the note of perspective and context i think mm-hmm. i'm constantly noting the surreality of sitting in cambridge discussing this and I think it's important to hold on to context not allow a binaristic vision of this where these kinds of issues or lives are 
in some other part of the world i think there are allied and similar problems besieging nearly every single city of the world so to not kind of distance and divorce oneself from it and i think it helps to constantly keep breaking things down to context to perspective even within delhi i often screen and i would be 20 minutes away from the actual communities and the uh, place where i'm screening in people would afterwards come and say they had never ever known of these things or were that uh, as if this was an entirely alien world my making of the film is also the product of course of the fact that i'm from a different class different caste uh, denomination to so i just think that holding on to some semblance of perspective and context is good and to not allow distancing to happen and to see that these kinds of currents and these kinds of cutthroats of the urban exist around you as well wherever one is listening to this thank you i know that part of the reason why i really wanted to be on this episode is my personal connection seeing the extent of the housing crisis currently throughout ireland specifically in the republic of ireland and around dublin so having a new perspective offered to me through your work has been really fascinating but it's also brought my mind back home and brought my mind to the parallels and contrast between those two experiences so that's been really valuable for me thank mm-hmm. you so much shreyashi do you have any concluding thoughts i'm just going to keep it short to say that it's important to just acknowledge the diversity of housing today and not just look at it from the perspective of crisis or affordability but both in terms of the actual form what's happening and what's getting produced and emerge from a more grounded process and practice as to how the communities are living this everyday experience in these spaces the right to adequate housing is a human right recognized in international human rights instruments yet homelessness is indeed a major societal challenge in both the global south and the global north each with their own idiosyncrasies As Shonak and Shiryashi have mentioned, it's not just one that should be distanced and viewed from the top down and as binaries, but rather we should allow perspective and context to feed into the conversation. We have just listened to Shiryashi and Shonak who have enriched this conversation by giving us an interesting perspective on homelessness and the housing crisis in the global south with a specific focus on South Asia. Thank you to you both. Thank you for having us here today and for all the stimulating questions and discussions. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us here on Declarations. Subscribe to Declarations on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Declarations Pod and like us on Facebook for updates. Tune in next time for more Declarations.